Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us today is Joe Toscano, an author, advisor, and public speaker on privacy, data, and technology. And thank you, Essie, for the introduction. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to talk to y'all. And this is a very pertinent topic that I think um, a lot of us will be very concerned and interested about. But before we go there, I want to start by asking you, can you share with our audience a little bit about your journey? What do you do? And very curious, how do you end up in the data privacy space? Yeah, that's a great start. Thank you for putting it out there. So to understand my background a little bit, we have to go back a little bit in time. I have been working in data privacy space more or less for the last half decade, but it was not a self-selected thing. It was more, I would say, uh, an emergency calling, if you will. I was working, my last full-time gig was a consultant out in Mountain View, uh, overseeing work at Google. And uh, and this was 2017, it was about five years ago. Actually, a little, almost five years ago to the day. Pretty interesting. Um, yeah, so I was I was doing my work out there and, and my background, I have, a data science background. When I was in college, I did graduate level, post-grad level research, uh, and I was paid for a couple years to do that. I decided, you know, this was 2008, 2010 area when apps were, you know, there's an app for that was everywhere. And um, I was seeing all this stuff come out and I was like, you know, I really enjoy the challenge that research brings, the insights, the sifting through data, all this kind of stuff. But I didn't really enjoy sitting in a college basement to do it, you know? And then I saw these apps and I was like, that literally, you know, this is a big social experiment. And these tools have the potential to really impact our world in a positive way. And so I started to learn to code in my free time. I picked up some apprenticeships. I, you know, did side projects. I then found a second degree and picked up uh, more skills, learning how to code and also design a little bit in the digital space. Well, five years in, I realized I'm going to be coding the systems that code the systems. So I'm probably better off moving more into the design space, right? And 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 then I from there I built my career really as a designer who could speak all the way from like schematics and sketches all the way through like implementation. Uh and it really helped me grow my career and that's how at 27 I was doing senior level uh consulting work at Google, managing some of their larger projects and overseeing that ecosystem gave me a frame on the valley that I think very few people might ever have had at the time. And it's not, you know, it wasn't just Google I saw. I was, you know, I was in order to keep Google on top, you have to keep on top of Facebook and Amazon, all the competitors to know what's going on and how to keep them ahead of uh, the space. What I saw, what concerned me the most, there's a lot of things we could talk about. What I saw the most and what we're here to talk about today was misuse of data. And I don't believe it was malicious. I believe it's because the industry grew faster than it was prepared for and was simply creating roles that sometimes had never been created before and filling them with people who had the nearest qualifications, right? Uh, UX design, for example, that was where I, I ended, I guess, if you will, my full-time corporate stuff. And what I saw at that field specifically, for example, UX design came out of the design field. So most people who are hiring conceptualize designer must be good at UX design. And in some senses that's true, but in others like the research side of it, that's not true. You know, you had a world where there was a lot of like MFAs and classically trained designers who brilliant minds 
brilliant designers, but had never worked with research, never worked with data, didn't understand, you know, how what it's like to go through an IRB or anything like that. And and so what ended up happening in the UX field, you started to see these classically trained designers run the research labs. And they would start to ask self-reinforcing questions. They would ask, you know, leading questions. It's just like with the best intentions in mind to do their job, to help their companies move forward, they were non-maliciously creating very malicious structures. And uh, when you work with a monopoly that can set up the stick with a carrot on the end, get you to get to the carrot and then move the carrot because the research validates that that's the right thing to do, it becomes highly problematic. And so I left because I felt that yeah, we need some guardrails, and I've participated in that. I've helped advise the AGs on the antitrust case on Facebook and Google. I have helped draft law in New York, Colorado. I have also helped draft the first data tax proposal in the state of New York. You know, I'm very involved in this stuff, and I do believe we need guardrails, but my bigger ambition was to change the industry by creating better business models because I think at the root of it, this can be done in a way that is good both for consumers and business and national security. And it doesn't have to be one or the other, but we do have to think creatively on how to make that happen. And we have to come to some agreements uh, on some baseline protections around that as well, which, you know, legal guardrails. But yeah, so that's that's my background. I'm very excited to, to be here today. I know there's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about in today's world and uh, ready to do it. It's fascinating. I was listening to you talk about your experience and and how you know you think that we can get to a space where it can benefit all of us um, with different business models. My my head is spinning right now, so I might come back to this in a sec. Um, before before we go there, um, you, you you mentioned a few words: Google, Facebook. Um, mm -hmm. Those are. I would say almost indispensable tools in many ways mm -hmm. and how we live our lives because everything we do is is digital you and i are talking virtual you know through through a screen um not face to face in person um our conversation is going to be recorded and distributed digitally right mm -hmm. before you and i were chatting i was having a conversation with someone in upstate new york also mm -hmm. digitally. And right before that, I was checking my email. So every single aspect of our lives, whether or not you're buying something, whether or not you're connecting your friends or doing your work, much of that is digitally. Whether we choose to or not, it seems like it, it mm -hmm. is a state. And we have the big tech companies. You mentioned Google, Facebook, we have Amazon, Apple, all of that. Yeah. One of the jokes I always talk about is between all of them, they probably know more about me than I know about myself. Um, because they track, I think that's a joke. right? And analyze everything. Okay. That's a real scary, real life. Um, mm -hmm. do we, but what's next though, right? You, you mentioned, you know, we could potentially have a different way to do that, but yet I almost feel like it's a trade-off or is it really a trade-off with how much I give them with how much they know about me? What am I getting in value exchange and how do I make sure they're not abusing or exploiting the information I have, is there even a, a way to, to say we can safeguard our privacy at the same time, enjoy the conveniences that we have come to 
take for granted in a lot of ways? Yeah, well, in short, my answer is yes, I do believe there is a way to answer the handful of questions that came out there. Let's try to attack one at a time. So Facebook, Google, Amazon, you're right. They're everywhere. I do believe those companies should be considered and uh, maybe, you know, uh, are not concretely considered, but should be uh, critical infrastructure for a modern society, right? Like you said, it's hard to get away from them. That being said, I don't necessarily see them all existing the way they do today in our future of our society, unless they make some critical changes. I think, for example, Facebook, Facebook as we know it is dying. It is on its way out. People can make arguments for meta and the future of the company all they want. I think all that is is Mark losing his mind and pitching as far out as he can because he knows he has nothing in the near term to take to Wall Street. Uh, that being said, the way I see it working, you know, when I was when I was in the Valley, you know, 2016, 2017 area, uh, Facebook had opened up a new app, Facebook Messenger, and pushed everyone to download it. I believe, they'll never say this publicly, but I believe the reason they did that is because they realized Facebook proper, the blue app, was dying, even back then. It's been dying. The cool kids are leaving. The young kids, more or less, are leaving. And uh, as there's more older people coming on, that's fine and dandy, but that's not that's not what sustains a social media. We've seen that time and again with social media over the eras. Now, everyone's like, well, they own Instagram too. But you could argue still today that the kids, at least, are moving off Instagram as well. And I'll be totally transparent. I don't really use much social media, so I don't know the next wave. And I'm probably to the point where I'm aged out myself. And uh, I'm not going to know the next wave, and I'm fine with that. Uh, but I am confident that the cool kids are leaving. And what that means for social media, which is a giant hype cycle, is that those apps were going to slowly fade away. I don't see Facebook falling off the face of the earth tomorrow. I see them slowly deflating over time because they don't have a business model outside of that. Now you talk about like Google and Amazon, totally different monsters. Google itself, a little bit harder to understand. That's also why, and, and I guess I didn't mention this in, in the intro, but you know, I was featured in the social dilemma um, that Google and the, the detail required to fully understand Google's model is a big reason why in the social dilemma, we focused more on a concept like a Facebook or an Instagram because people can wrap their heads around it. They use it every day. It's a little more tangible, but Google is hundreds of times larger. Their, their uh, market cap might not be hundreds of times larger, but their actual technologies, hundreds of times more impactful, uh, in my opinion, than any Facebook product. But people don't fully understand because Google is like the oxygen we breathe every day. You just It's just there. You don't even barely notice it, right? Um, that being said, I see Google lasting, but I see them lasting in a different way. Now, first of all, they have to get through all the legislation that is coming up against them. Um, we're seeing Google, like fines on Google pop up all across the European Union every other day. You know, it's crazy. Google Analytics has been <clears throat> deemed illegal in multiple jurisdictions across Europe. That's not a good sign for that platform. That doesn't mean they can't keep operating. It just means like definitely not a good sign, right? But I think if anybody, Google may end up changing gears a bit. Um, and they have a lot of arms and different things that would allow them to sustain beyond just an ad model if they wanted to. I think I see Google becoming more like IBM. And when I say that, 
for the older people in the room listening, you all remember IBM and, and even, you know, just people who know tech history, IBM was a giant. IBM was a household name. People knew the name IBM at one point in history. Today, I would argue that's not the same. Tech people definitely know IBM, and there's a lot of people who do. But, you know, you ask kids, they probably don't really know the name or roughly familiar. And uh, that being said, IBM's in everything, right? IBM is the underbelly of a lot of government technology, medical technology, very critical infrastructure. I kind of see Google heading that way maybe over time. Uh, and, it, and it just depends how they manage their reputation, manage their company. They they may stay number one, you know, or high up there for a long time. Um, Amazon, again, different story. And, and I don't even know where to start with Amazon, but who knows? With the antitrust, I think that's the one that they actually can kind of see more of a tangible case, splitting up AWS and and uh, the marketplace. So who knows where that's going to go? But going back to then the the uh, question of is privacy dead? Can we get it back? Um, I think the answer is that privacy is dying, but it is not dead yet. Privacy is never fully dead uh, unless you know we allow it to be, and I don't think. As a, at least as American people, I don't think we will allow it to die. Um, doesn't mean it's not going to get worse. But the fact of the matter is you still have privacy in your life. You can choose not to use these apps. You can choose to. Now, a lot of people don't, right? And I understand it's critical infrastructure. But there, there's also a level of privacy. Like privacy is just more or less like how much do they know and is it capable of being used, right? Um, on top of that, and yes, there's more details. But in short, right? Think of it kind of that way. And then when you consider that the models they have put together, people are like, well, Google has 10, you know, 10 years, two decades, whatever, worth of data on me. How could that possibly ever change? You know, how could it get any better? Well, the, the fact of the matter is data doesn't, it's not always good, right? We move. So your address changes. We have different email addresses over time. We change our phone number. We, you know, not always and not super frequently, but, you know, data does have an expiration date, a lot of it. You know, social security or fingerprints or stuff like that, a little different. But there's a lot of stuff about us that changes and needs to be frequently uh, upkept. And so, you know, some of these models too, you know, whether it's Facebook or Google or any of these data companies, they don't die, but there is a way in which they could traumatically shrink if they are not used as much over the course of a decade, five, 10 years, you know, it, it's, it is feasible that we have a paradigm shift and, uh, you know, improvement in privacy law and protections on data rights, stuff like that, as well as literacy rates increasing through consumers and government entities. There is the potential that there is catastrophic damage to their model and that over time with less use, it kind of, you know, deflates. So, um, I don't know. I don't know how exactly it's going to go. And, and my bigger ambition, going back to the better business model question, what I've been exploring lately is the narrative of privacy and data protection as a measure of ESG. And I think that's where we're headed. I'm very confident. It's been popping up all over my newsfeed. I've been digging into it for the last year or two. But um, I think it's going to be a huge thing because compliance isn't really working that well, not only because the laws are built for a different world, right? The GDPR, all due respects, brought a great conversation to the world, very necessary conversation. Bad law, though, bad law, really broke the Internet, was very, very much and still to this day basically unenforceable because of the scale of the infractions. It basically broke everybody. So just wasn't made very well. It wasn't uh, – 
not the foresight to 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 take incremental steps. And but also you have a European Union who made it. Who you know the corporations are not European corporations. They have a reason to buzz saw. It is it is their their world, and that's fine. And aspirationally, I think it's great what they're pushing for. Um, but that law, you know, broken, and then it it trickled into CCPA and CPRA and the Colorado Privacy and others around the U.S. now and Canada and uh, into Brazil and. It's impacting everywhere. Um, that being said, compliance is not the full answer, right? Compliance is a step forward in some ways, and I do think it should be used as a guardrail, but compliance, it's not feasible to constantly, and we don't want it to be either, ahead of industry. Um, what they're trying to do is put a cardboard box around a body of water, right? It's going to leak out. They're going to find ways to get out of the box. They're going to create new technologies around it. They're going to find models that, you know, do something different. And um, and so we have to think of not necessarily how to punish them, but incentivize better behavior. And I think a lot of that comes through um, education on how this can be done more efficiently and what disclosure can do. Having some disclosure requirements, I think, could dramatically increase literacy around the world. right? And then when consumers know more, they protect themselves. We have more of, you know, and, and that's probably the most American thing you're going to hear from my mouth today, but we need to find a way to make it make money. And I 100% believe it's feasible. Wow. I have so many thoughts with what you just said um, around GDPR, around um, the various facets that we have tried and I think in many ways failed miserably to try to do anything in the United States. Um, everything is very fragmented. Um, mm -hmm. and every state has a different version and interpretation of what needs to get done. Yeah. Um, and, and it's not just about privacy, right? I think it's about any, everything else. It feels like 50 many countries. Um, so it, 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 it's very hard to actually get, um, anything done from, from a compliance and, and regulatory perspective. Yeah. Your comment around um, consumer education is really interesting because I I cannot remember exactly where that source was, but I remember coming through, reading through a, a report recently that talked about almost wanted to, in a way, saying that consumers are way too trusting of how brands handle their data than they should be. Um, we just think it's a big brand and our data is safe with them yeah. without thinking repercussions on what else it can do. Um, so totally agree. I think education is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. I, I do want to ask you, because you mentioned something about GDPR, um, about how it was implemented in the EU. Mm -hmm. If we take a step back and look through how EU has approached the big tech companies and how they're thinking what they need to put in place to safeguard their citizens' privacy versus all the way on the other side of the world, what India has been doing, what China has been doing, uh, not just with data privacy, but also data sovereignty, right, mm -hmm. on what can go out and what's not allowed to leave. And then coming back home, looking at how we're looking at data, the one thing I always think about is, is how does that impact positively or negatively tech innovation? For example, AI, 
it needs tons of data. It needs a ridiculous amount of access to data yeah. to be able to create a model, to be able to do something useful to it. Now, as we start setting up guardrails mm-hmm. along physical country boundaries, and then we start setting rules in place on what you can, cannot do. Do you think, um, and I'm curious to hear what you think, do you think that policy difference and, and the attitude of, of how we think about data and privacy has contributed to how tech innovation has been able to progress in the different jur- jurisdiction? Yeah, 100%, I think it does. Uh, and to be fair, I don't know a lot about what's going on in India and China. I've been very focused on the US and Europe, um, especially the US, because that's where I live. And as everyone probably listening knows, we're in a bit of a mess. And I think we need to take care of ourselves before we try to tell others what to do. So I've been focusing very heavily on the US market. Um, now, going back to the question, does that change our ability to innovate or would a law restrict or whatnot? So. Let me go through a few different things here on that one. So we've seen over the last few years, and I'm sure part of this is due to COVID, but research recently has found that the number of apps in the app store has shrunk by upwards of 40% now since the GDPR came out, right? That doesn't mean the GDPR is the cause or that all these privacy laws are the cause. It definitely has in part to do with COVID and and, uh, bear markets, recessions, all that kind of stuff is part of it too. Companies die. That's part of it. Um, but I think we would be foolish to say it has nothing to do with it, right? Uh, definitely, it makes it harder to get a company off the ground. It makes founders more concerned about what they are doing and what they need to do. And there's higher expenses to getting into the market, et cetera. So I think there's a huge potential to innovate and provide a tool or a system that would allow companies to you know, get there faster and, and cheaper. Um, secondarily, we talked about uh, you need a lot of data to do any of this stuff. Now. I think that's there's there's two sides of this that have yet to be considered, and we're gonna I'm gonna talk about innovation in a corporate sense first, and then I'm gonna talk about national security. Um, from a corporate innovation perspective, yes, hundred percent, you need a lot of data, and I also, while I am an advocate for privacy rights and data protection stuff like that, I am not blind to the fact that we need this to continue our innovation. There is ways to balance that for sure. That, you know, and then you come back and you talked about, you know, what are they doing in China? How they're really focusing, investing heavily, all this stuff. Now, I wrote a piece about this actually, I want to say probably a couple of years ago, but the innovation in China and how, you know, actually my, my, my girlfriend is from Beijing. So I hear a lot about it too that way, uh, indirectly from reading the news. But um, China obviously has very robust technology infrastructure. They are. I'd say at our balance or very near and maybe potentially even overcoming the United States in many ways. However, now we're talking about data and the value it's bringing to those systems. Chinese internet tools, for the most part, right? Let's uh, abstract from TikTok, which is now all over. Chinese technologies more or less are in China, right? There's not a lot of, it's not like the US internet companies, which are global for sure, 100%. China has a big impact. 
but the larger majority of them stay within China because of the fact that people are aware of the surveillance that then goes back to China. Um, and then the quantity of data, right? People are like, well, they have so many more people. There's so much more data created. They're forced into the surveillance. So it's even more than we would even have. And a lot of that's also true. They, they probably, not only in, in terms of like, uh, you know, feature parity or whatnot quality, they, they probably have also as much or maybe more data than we do, just sheer scale, right? Uh, in, in some senses and others, maybe not, but, um, the thing that I think it's lost on people is we live in this old world of more is better, at least in the United States, right? You can see it all over. More is always better. Well, in the case of data, that's not always true. More is not always better. You can have everyone's data, but if it's inaccurate and unusable, it's worth nothing. Now, in the Chinese sense, they have all this data. But there are plenty of studies that show, and I forget the exact psychological law, but that if people understand or know that they are being surveilled, they will change their behavior. It will change their behavior in the near and long term. They will do things to avoid surveillance. They will do things to answer in ways they feel the surveiller would be pleased, but they may not honestly feel. Right? There's a lot of ways that I believe China is actually pushing its society to give it data, to train its AI. And it's not built on honest, true, actionable data. It's built on proper, nationalized, high security, or maybe uh, security is not the word, but it is, I'm sure, secure for them. But lots of surveillance, lots of very invasive surveillance. And so they're going to start getting falsified data. They're going to start to get data that people want uh, the, 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 uh, the government to hear, right? Um, they're going to start to build, I believe, is actually very brittle data and therefore they're going to train their ai on that and it's going to create brittle ai now people say well i don't know about it but i do fundamentally believe that and then you got to also consider who's going to use those tools because similar to like in the united states we've already seen problems simple examples um the sinks in a bathroom that don't read a person of color's hand as easily as a white person's hand right that's because of the training data right that's a simple example now extrapolate that out to all different operations of a society if their tools are built exclusively on chinese data it will work exclusively or most exclusively for chinese citizens and in the sense we just spoke about, if it's built on not only Chinese citizens, but falsified data from Chinese citizens, it's a really brittle system they're actually building, then to say that the European nations or the American nations or anywhere else is going to adopt that technology is a whole other step, right? Like my belief, most American citizens will not use outside of TikTok, uh, will probably not willfully use a Chinese technology system unless there is some kind of economic force or uh, measure of war that requires us to start to because we have our own infrastructure right um, at the world economic forum on our data protection committee a few years ago we were talking that probably will be less nation state jurisdictions as we know them today and more internet jurisdictions a chinese internet a european internet a, a united states internet maybe india maybe africa and then a dark web right who knows how it's all going to go exactly but i do think that if the U.S. wants to maintain its leadership. Its best bet would to be to create technologies that people trust and give honest, validated data to, and that can scale across many nations, not just the United States. And so 
Yeah, and then uh, the last point here, national security. I also believe this is an arms race, and a lot of people don't want to say that out loud, but I do think that that is the case. And I also believe that part of the reason the United States has had reluctance to create strict regulation is because they realize we need to stay ahead of the arms race, and they are maybe sacrificially leaving our citizens at a lack of protection in favor of a long-term military strategy because they're not sure exactly what that is yet. You know, and I'm not speaking for the government. I am not part of any, you know, Biden administration or anything, but I do think that's probably going through their brains a little bit. And so we're, you know, part of it is the companies are based in the U.S., so we have an incentive to not regulate as much. Part of it is probably, though, also maybe these technologies are going to be part of our military strategy at some point, and we are in conversation. You know, Eric Schmidt straddled both the Department of Defense and Google at the same time. There's no, no walking around the fact that these companies are embedded with the government. Okay, so something else for people to consider if you haven't or you just don't want to say it out loud. So you certainly gave us some food for thought there, Joe. Um, changing gears a little bit. Let's talk about the recent Supreme Court ruling and the need to preserve privacy, which is becoming more critical, shall we say. Now, what are some of the risks that consumers and companies will face, will likely face? Um, do you think we would finally nudge closer to securing more data privacy rights? You know, this is a hard question to answer because <clears throat> the privacy advocate in me says this is the time to begin really pushing hard on the privacy conversation. But the ethical human in me says, this is a much larger crisis and maybe we need to clear the airwaves for those conversations first. It's a really hard dichotomy that we've walked ourselves into. Uh, the, the bigger thing with privacy, as you're mentioning, you know, I think this is opening a bigger conversation now, right? Because in part privacy is like, it's like a mountain lion, right? It's it's always there, but you don't actually see it or know about it till it comes bites you in the ass. And unfortunately, that's where we're at right now. We don't have any protections. They rolled back rights. And now we don't know how it's going to go. I've participated in some conversations with uh, with people who are, you know, governing bodies. People are trying to change these things. And the first step I told them, I said, you know, Y'all need to get off Facebook Messenger. You need to get off WhatsApp because you just don't know how it's going to be used. You don't know if you send a message to somebody in Texas or in one of these states where it is now really going to go bad. You don't know if they're going to leverage that messaging to then consider you aiding and abetting in the process. I'm not saying that that's the definition and that's exactly how they're going to do it, but you don't know, right? And you have no rights. You have no protections, right? So... If you are listening and you're trying to coordinate this stuff, if you are open to hosting people at your house, if you are, you know, you know, cross state lines, et cetera, right? You really need to consider number one, get off Facebook Messenger, get off WhatsApp. Facebook even told its employees, don't message about this. That's crazy. And you can guarantee they definitely don't want them doing it on Facebook platforms, right? 
don't use it. Get off. Go pick up Signal. Go pick up Keybase. Keybase will allow you to do file transfers. Use ProtonMail. Get off of anything that could potentially track you down. And if you do host people, have them turn off their phone at least before they get there. It's not going to guarantee that the signal's not going through, but at least it's not having those apps. And better yet, maybe just keep their phone at your office, right? Have them come to your office, plant it there and leave it. I don't know the best answer to tell anyone, but if you don't take some precautions, you are definitely risking at this point in history. We just don't know what they're going to use, and we don't know who's going to be in power to make those decisions at this point. But right now, it's not looking good. I, I agree. Um, I remember reading quite a few articles recently talking about even something as simple as using an app to track, right, your your biological process, if you will, for lack of better words, um, or anything like that. It, it could potentially be used. And so I've seen people that that mm -hmm. tell, you know, folks, just go back to pen and paper pen and paper or Excel spreadsheet, or put a marker on your calendar that that is not that is discreet. Like, mm -hmm. this is this is this is what we've come down to is on purpose, they have they loosely define what yeah. it could be. And so mm -hmm. potentially, like you say, we don't know what the future holds. And without adequate protection, we don't really have the rights. And it can be so broad. <laughs> And and that's the that's the scary thing. Like thinking back as a parent, I have I have two kids, and what pains me is my daughter, who's nine, is going to be growing up with less rights than I did back yeah. when, um, you know, when when I was growing up, and it it it, it hurts. And know that digital is now how we all live. This is what the kids know, right? And Facebook messaging, all of that aside, we have YouTube, we have Instagram, we have all of these tools that the kids have grown up with. Yeah. Um, how do we even help children navigate the digital space? And at school, for example, they use Google Classroom. They use an entire suite of Google tools, make it very easy, especially the last two years when we had to switch to virtual learning. I am curious to hear from you, like knowing the landscape that we're in right now, mm -hmm. um, seeing how technology is being used and how it could potentially be used for us or against people. How do you think this will affect the next generation of, of, of kids growing up, right? Because in 10 years time, all of these children are going to be software developers. They're going to be designers. They will be advocate, hopefully, for better privacy and protection and rights. They will be the ones that will create the next generation of digital products, not the yeah. work that we have right now. What will the next iteration of Internet look like? It's a good question. Um, I do want to take a moment and step back to the last, just a final statement on some of the, the Roe v. Wade stuff for anybody listening to think about too. We recently saw Google claim they're going to not, you know, track your location or, or let you know, or let anybody know about you going to like a Planned Parenthood or any other abortion clinics. The thing is, Google can triangulate that location from a lot of other data too. So keep that in mind, right? We saw years ago that Target was targeting women who were uh, pregnant. Right. We've seen that whole thing come out. Well, that wasn't because they were tracking period apps. That was based on their purchasing behaviors. 
they had realized, for example, that women who were pregnant started to buy unscented lotion. And there was other, you know, different behaviors that they did that was very accurate in predicting whether the woman was pregnant or not. And just everybody needs to really consider the fact that <clears throat> your, your, your abortion app, your period app, your any other app that's tracking your bodily activity, definitely critical infrastructure and like very obvious, but without any rights, there's a lot of ways to triangulate this. And you really need to consider how much you put online at this moment. If you're even approaching the conversation of going to get an abortion or any of that, you need to really think it through. You need to help others if you know you need to help others understand it. And we need to start fighting for rights. And I don't claim that as like an opportunist. This is very real. And I want to just say like, we need to, we need to protect this moment. So just keep that in mind. In regards to the next generation of technology, I very much believe that the kids will do it different. And that's why I'm investing so much of my time trying to teach kids, trying to educate people. You know, my book, Automating Humanity, it was written for the general public. I've had teachers across the U.S., across even Canada and Europe call me. They're going to teach it for the rest of their lives. And I hope they do because we need to teach kids these principles. You know, I'm also working on games that can help moralize these issues, things that we can play to learn rather than having to read a long technical textbook. You know, just like The Three Little Pigs or Goldilocks or all these other books we read as kids taught us morals that we now unconsciously have instilled, we need that for data. And I do believe it will change the way our society produces technologies. But I do also think, yeah, we're in a, a weird limbo. I think at least for the next five to 10 years, where we're going to have to try to figure this out. And it is going to be a big battle. It is a huge power grab. That's not even a maybe it's it's happening in real time. You know, privacy, ultimately, it is about power. And I can tell you, I've helped shape and draft laws across different jurisdictions. And it is nearly impossible to get a government actor to say, yeah, we can restrict this stuff for all corporates, but not for government, right? Like most of them, they're like, yeah, we can make it so the corporate has to make things more transparent. We can make it so that nonprofits, are, but, but, oh, government, no, we need this. You guys can't. Your privacy, it's important, but like we need to be able to surveil you. How about this though? My parents were mail carriers when I was growing up. And they always taught me this principle, don't open anyone's mail. I don't know if you know why. Do you know why you don't open anyone's mail? Do you know what the offense, what the charge is for that? No it is idea. a felony. Oh, it is a, really? a felony if you open someone's mail. Yet companies all across the internet are opening our mail every second of the day. And there is no punishment. I don't understand. The whole purpose of you not being able to open someone's mail is so that you could communicate privately. You could have freedom of expression. You could have dissenting opinions to those in power. You could communicate, assemble, and perform your democratic duties and activate those. When we don't have protected communications, like we're seeing with Roe v. Wade, but among every other issue as well, we lose democracy. We lose freedom. And that's the core of these arguments. And unfortunately, in this moment in history, it comes down to, well, now that Roe v. Wade's over, we have to have a different conversation, right? Unfortunately, we didn't think about this proactively. People didn't take it serious, and now we're here. So what are we going to do, right? Um, so, yeah, generationally, 
I have confidence. I've talked to a lot of kids. I've talked to a lot of people who want to make change. I think there's a groundswell of people, even inside these companies, who want to make change. But they need the tools to do it, and they need the support from consumers, and they need the support from politicians. Not necessarily strict regulation, but gas pedal. You need to push these companies to change. We need... um our politicians to actually have a backbone to stand up for what is right for people and not what is right for their own political future, wherever the pendulum swings. And I think that is, regardless of which party you belong to, um, that seems to be the struggle nowadays. Let's mm -hmm. end with this. Seeing where we are today and unfortunately where we might be heading in the next uh, three to five years and beyond that what is the one thing that keeps you up the most at night and for those who pick up a copy of your book automating humanity what is the one message that you would hope they would walk away with i want people to know that while it feels scary right now while it feels like the walls are caving in and that there is no hope in the world there is, right? You can still walk outside and enjoy freedom of your privacy in your own home, in your neighborhood, in your communities. We still have a lot of privacy in our lives. On the internet, that may not be true as much, but in many other areas of our lives, we still have a lot of privacy. And I want everyone to think about what would they do if they didn't have that? Because it can go that way. I have been fighting for five years to make sure it doesn't. There are dozens, if not thousands of people now at this point in history who are fighting the fight to make sure it doesn't go that way. But just like any democracy or any democratic decision, it's going to require more than a few advocates to make the change and to protect our privacy and our rights in this world. Democracy gets crazy. We're seeing it right now, right in the middle of it, the craziness right now. But that doesn't mean it's over. That's what makes democracy what it is. Democracy is an active fight in perpetuity for what we want and the freedoms that we deserve. And I hope if anybody listens to this, if anybody reads my book, they have a toolbox to think about things. Right? You need to dig deeper. You need to form your own opinions about what you think is right and wrong. You need to educate yourself. And I know that takes a lot of time. I know it's painstaking, but this is where we are. And it's not going to get better if we cower in fear. That is so very true. And um, I think, if anything, one thing we learned is we cannot take that for granted. So thank you so much for spending time with us. I really love the conversation. It's, it's a topic that regardless of who you are that's listening and regardless of what you do, it is a topic that concerns all of us as well as the next generations and generations thereafter. So thank you so much again, Joe, um, for being with us. And for the rest of you, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We will talk to you all next week. <music>